You're listening to Hosea, the Jealous Love of a Holy God, a Sunday school series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. So the theme for the lesson today is judgment. Judgment upon God's people for forsaking Him. Judgment upon God's people for their unfaithfulness to the covenant that they made with Him. I want us to feel the weight of God's judgment, the judgment that Israel was now experiencing through the names of Hosea's children. I want to understand the depth of despair and hopelessness that Israel walked through as a result of their unceasing rejection of God. And so essentially one of the things I want us to do today is I want us to really just feel a little bit of what Israel should have felt. When this judgment was announced, when these children were named, when God was preparing to demonstrate his wrath and his justice upon this sinful nation. I want us to feel what that would have been like a little bit. And I think that, that the children here and the names that they're given really give us a glimpse into God's heart and also into the, the power of God as he judges his people. There will be a time in this book when we see the light at the end of the tunnel. Okay? Like I said, there's, there's whispers of hope, there's whispers of grace through the whole book, even in the, these moments of judgment. We'll see that at the end here. But I, I want us to think for a little bit about what judgment is, because I think oftentimes in churches and, and, and in Christianity today, we focus almost entirely and solely upon the love of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. And I'm, I mean, I'm so thankful for those things. I'm, those things are so needful in my life. And I would never want to diminish those things. But I think those things are even magnified to a greater extent when we recognize the justice of God in His carrying out judgment upon sinful people. And that we deserve this kind of judgment. We deserve this kind of despair, hopelessness but that God has shown mercy on us. And so I hope that we'll get there today. You say, I thought Hosea was a love story. (laughs) It is. It's a, a story about a God who passionately loves his people, who is passionately jealous of his people, and who is passionately angry when his people are unfaithful. And wouldn't it be strange if God said that he loved his people to this extent, but when they left him, he thought, nah, no big deal. I mean, there are people in your life that you might say you love them, but then when they walk into your life and you feel nothing, does it demonstrate that you didn't really have a lot of love for them in the first place? And here we see that God certainly loves his people and that them walking away from him is not okay. Hosea is preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel. Sometimes it's called Samaria after the capital city. Sometimes it's called Ephraim for the dominant tribe that made up the 10 tribes of northern Israel. Last week, we saw the relationship between God and his people that it is often pictured as a marriage, that God is the perfect bridegroom and Israel is the failing bride. And I think that is a beautiful picture of the way God sees the relationship between himself and his people, what intimacy there is there. I mean, you can't pick a relationship that is more intimate than that of marriage. Much of the Old Testament is God trying to convince his bride and to teach his bride to remain faithful to him. So before we get into Hosea, let's see what all the fuss is about. What had Israel done that was so evil? 
How would they act so wickedly that demanded such drastic action from the Lord, such drastic judgment? Well, we said that the first ruler of the northern tribe of Israel was Jeroboam I. And he had set up a false worship system that counterfeited the sacrifices, the priesthood, the worship center, the idea that there was one place that they went to worship, and all of the festivals that were in God's law. He had taken what was given to Israel before in the book of Leviticus and and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all of the sacred days and all of the laws and all of the sacrifices and all the things that they they used as part of the worship, they had taken that and made a counterfeit of it. Made his own version of each of those things. Made his own temple that they would sacrifice in. Made his own altar. Devised his own rules that resembled in some ways what was originally given but wasn't real. This is what Jeroboam had done. And so what I want us to see is I want to see that God was very specific in the way he commanded Israel to worship. And it is very clear that Israel had started doing what they were supposed to do in um, 1 Kings chapter 9. And then I want to see how they moved away from that and how the judgment that was coming upon them was very legitimate. So we're going to see the history of what happened before we get to these names of the children So that we recognize that this wasn't just God being flippant in his judgment. He wasn't just all of a sudden deciding that, well, you know what, I I think that you're just being bad today, so I'm going to punish you this drastically. That this had been something that had been commanded years and years ago, and it had been something that had been long time coming because of their sin. So in Deuteronomy chapter 12, we're going to be reading a few verses here. Um, We're skipping around a little bit, but reading just to get this full picture of the story of why they're being judged. Deuteronomy 12 verse 5. It says, but unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto this habitation shall you seek, and thither shall you come. In verse 11, he says, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall you bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the heave offering of your hand and all your choice vows which you vow unto the Lord. And if we were to read the rest of Deuteronomy 12, we would see that the word place is used 10 or 12 times, and it's, it's specific to there is going to be a spot, a location. This is not just random. It's not wherever you want. It's not however you want. That God has a design for his worship. First Kings chapter 9, we start to see that design come to fruition. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, And it came to pass, when Solomon had finished building of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all of Solomon's desire, which he had pleased to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as it appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house, which thou hast built, to put my name there forever. Mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked in an integrity of heart and in an uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee and wilt keep my statutes and judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But if you shall at all turn away from following me, you are your, you are your children and shall not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go after and serve other gods and worship them, then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I had given them. And this house, which you have hallowed for my name, will I cast out of my sight. 
in Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all the people. And at this house, which is high, everyone that passes by it shall be astonished and shall hiss and say, why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? So you see what's happening here. He's saying this is going to be the place. He's establishing that. And he's also already explaining to them that he will stay there forever, but if they reject him, he will leave. And so much so that he will leave his house and it will be destroyed and people will walk by and say, how could the Lord do this to his place, to his people? Doesn't make any sense. But it says in verse number nine, and they shall answer. So what's, why? Why would God do that? Because they forsook the Lord their God who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have taken a hold upon other gods and have worshipped them and have served them. Therefore has the Lord brought upon them all this evil. It was promised. This is what was going to happen. In 1 Kings chapter 14, God sends a message to Jeroboam. This is the same Jeroboam we're talking about. This is, sorry, this is Jeroboam, the first Jeroboam. And it's a terrible message. I mean, it's, it's a message of great judgment. In 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 7, it says, Go tell Jeroboam, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, for as much as I exalted thee from among the people and made thee a prince over my people Israel, but thou hast done evil above all that were before thee, for thou hast gone and made the other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and hast cast me behind thy back. Therefore, behold... I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam. So this is Jeroboam's sin. This is, this is the Jeroboam and Rehoboam. This is the, the, the first official king of the northern tribes of Israel. And he's saying, because you have made yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger, you have cast me behind your, your back. I love that picture of what it is to reject God. It's to say, God, I, I see you. I see that you're there. This is what you require of me but I'm putting you behind my back and I don't care. I have no use for what you've said. I don't want to follow your ways and, and your... And so when God is talking here, if you were to find out what Jeroboam actually did, Jeroboam tried to set up a new temple. He tried to set up new sacrifices. He tried to do something that resembled the Old Testament system that was used, that was expected to be used in the temple in Jerusalem. So maybe in Jeroboam's mind, he was he was convincing himself, yeah, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm trying to do what's right here. This, this kind of makes sense. But what God is saying is you've made, you're worshiping other gods. You've made graven images. This is a false temple. None of that's real. Therefore, I will judge you. I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam. We find in verse 12 that his son would die. We find in verse 14 that his kingdom would be taken from him. In verse 15, it says, for the Lord shall smite Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. Can you imagine that? Reed being shaken by the water. And he shall root up Israel out of his good land, which he gave to their fathers, and shall scatter them beyond the river because they have made their groves, provoking the Lord to anger. And he shall give up Israel because of the sins of Jeroboam, who did sin and who made Israel to sin. Jeroboam is the start here. And all of these, the succession of kings fall in line after Jeroboam. They all are committing the same sins. They're all leading the people toward the same sins. And Jeroboam II was no difference. 
In 2 Kings chapter 17, we find another text that is it's helpful for us. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the statutes of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. Already get that, that part of what's happening here, part of the problem is all of the people that God had commanded them to cast out, all of the things that they weren't supposed to be a part of, they had now joined into their regular routine. It had become a part of their worship. It had become of, of a part of their culture. I hope that as we say this, you see the parallel to the church today. Right? This, this is a huge problem within the church. We're living in the culture. We're not supposed to be like them. So he says, you've, you've brought them all in. And the children of Israel did secretly those things which were not right against the Lord their God. And they built them high places in all their cities, from the Tower of Watchmen to the fenced cities. And they set up images and groves in every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away before them and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols. Wherefore the Lord said unto them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by the prophets and by all the seers, saying, Turn you from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I command your fathers and which I set, sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Do you see here that, that what they're doing is so evil and yet rather than sending judgment immediately, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet trying to warn them and call them back to the laws that, I, that he's given them. And the way it's, it, it's said, it's almost like this plea of God. Like this desperate desire of his heart. It's not this harsh ruling God who is being mean and, and you better listen to me now. It's like, why won't you turn? Why won't you come back to me? Why won't you follow the ways? They're good that I gave you. Verse 14 says, Notwithstanding, they would not hear, but they hardened their necks like the neck of their fathers, that they did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. They followed vanity, became vain, and went after the heathen that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not be like them, do like them. And they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, and they made them molten images, even two calves, and made them a grove, and worshipped all the hosts of the heaven and served Baal. Does that verse 16 not sound exactly like where Jeroboam started? And so now, years later, the kings are doing the exact same thing. Israel is doing the exact same thing. They caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire. They used divination and enchantments. They sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Therefore... The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. Also Judah kept not the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statues of Israel, which they had made. And the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. For he rent Israel from the house of David and they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them sin a great sin. 
For the children of Israel walked in the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They departed not from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he had said by the servants, the prophets, so was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. Okay? They had every chance. They had every opportunity. And yet they continued in the sins of Jeroboam. 750 years later in John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at the well, Samaritan woman, right? And you remember that, that whole thing about, can I have some water? Um, well, why are you asking me of water? I'm a, I'm a Samaritan. This is crazy. You're even talking to me. It doesn't make any sense. Go get your husband. I don't have any. You know that, that whole, I've got five. And, and how it's interesting that when the woman realizes that Jesus knows who she is, he says, well, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then goes back to, well, you guys say, that we should be worshiping here, but I think, or what my, our fathers did our, back in, you know, Jacob, they worshiped over here in Jerusalem. Um, and so it becomes this like religious political discussion rather than focusing on the sin that Jesus has just brought up in, in, in her life, which is, I mean, classic way of defending yourself. It's just, well, how about this, right? Well, how about this? You know, let's, let's just talk about something different. But the reason she did that is because she still has the same thought process of the people that had followed Jeroboam, that set up this new temple, that had this new way of doing sacrifices. She was still on this side. In all of that time, there had been no type of repentance. And what I think is amazing here is that Jesus is going to speak to this woman in particular, on purpose, to speak to the woman who obviously is still thinking the same thoughts that Jeroboam, that had led all of the Israelites into this sin so long ago. That just shows you the grace of God and how he's reaching out still to save those people who have rejected him for so long. And so we get a picture of all of this in Hosea. The picture of the judgment and why the judgment is happening and how it's necessary and how it's been promised and God is fulfilling his promise to judge. But at the same time, we see these these glimpses of God reaching back and reaching out to his people and trying to call them back, trying to still save them. So back to Hosea. Hosea chapter 1, verse 3. So he, Hosea, at the Lord's command, went out and took Gomer, the son of Diblam, which conceived and bare him a son. The Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the land of Jezreel. Well, here God is revealing to Hosea what he will do. And if you read this chapter and you look for the the phrase that the Lord will do something, you'll see it all over. God is promising now that this judgment will come to pass. This in itself is an act of mercy. He's warning them. He's calling them back. Now the meaning of Jezreel, because there are three children that are listed and he almost gives us the meaning of what the children's names are in the other verses, but with Jezreel, it's not so clear. Has anybody ever studied this out and, and you, you've kind of figured out why the person was named Jezreel? Anybody done that? Good, because I just <laughs> didn't want competition. <laughs> the truth is, this is one of those things that is um, it, it, not, not 100% known. 
So I'm going to give you all of what I've learned, most of what I've learned, and hopefully this will make some sense of why he said, call him Jezreel, right? Because it, that does seem kind of strange to us in the first place. Um, what does it mean that he's going to avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and cause the kingdom of the house of Israel to cease? What is that talking about? So to us, it's, Jezreel sounds just like a weird name. Um, the meaning of the name helps only a little bit. The meaning of Jezreel means God may sow or God sows. And so the valley of Jezreel was a place that was named after just this idea that God sows and, and, and we reap. And it's almost a positive thing in the way that it's named. But there is here already a connection of sowing and reaping. And I think that's important to remember because we're going to find that all of what's happening to Israel is a matter of they have sowed sin and now they're reaping the judgment that they deserve. But for Hosea's audience, Jezreel brought to mind the Valley of Jezreel, a valley located between Galilee and Samaria. I was in Ottawa a little while back and we went to the Upper Canada Village. And we ate dinner as like a picnic at the memorial for the site of the Battle of Chrysler's Farm or the Battle of Chrysler's Field. Has anybody heard of that battle before? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a pretty fascinating battle. There was 400 U.S. soldiers. This was in 1813, November 11th, and 900 British or Canadian soldiers, right? And, and here they fought and the, the fighting started almost by accident at 10.30 a.m. It was, it was a matter of one person thought the other person fired, and so they fired back, and then everybody just started firing. And so the battle wasn't actually planned to start then, but it did. And at the end of 4 p.m., all American soldiers were either killed, captured, or had retreated to their boats. This is 4,000 Americans against 900 Canadians. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> There's a few people in this room that might not like that. I like it. The result, the result was there was 102 U.S. soldiers killed, 120 captured, 240 wounded. And the Canadian side, there was 31 killed and 13 missing. So not, not too shabby. Um, and what's interesting is each year this battle is reenacted on the field as a memorial, as something that points to this significant battle. Because what they say is the U.S. Army was headed toward Montreal. And all of Canada would have looked very differently if that battle had gone the other way, potentially. And so um, the Valley of Jezreel would have been to the Israelites somewhat like some of these memorial sites would be like to us. These battlefields where very significant battles were fought. And so we think of of the battle of, or the, the field of Christ, Chrysler's field as a, a positive thing, a thing we look at and say, oh, way to go. But the Valley of Jezreel wasn't that way. It was a place where a lot of blood was shed, a place where a lot of terrible things happened. This was the scene of many significant and violent events in Israel's history. There was the Israelite forces when they mustered in preparation for a disastrous battle with the um, Philistines in 1 Samuel 29. They got ready for a battle and it was, it was terrible. It went terribly. Jezreel is where Naboth had his vineyard, that he was framed and murdered by the agents of Jezebel. In the valley of Jezreel, it, would, it was the scene of the battles fought by Deborah and Gideon, which would have been then a, a positive thing for them, that, where they won battles there. It was also here that Jehu killed Joram, 
and Jezebel and the rest of Ahab's household and supporters. In 2 Kings chapter 9. And interestingly, it's also here where the battle at Megiddo, Megiddo, the battle of Armageddon will be fought later on. So this is a very significant value in, a valley in Israel's past and in the world's future. It's, it's a pretty crazy place. It's, it's a place worth knowing about. Um, but what God does here is he mentions very specifically this event where I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and I will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. So the house of Jehu refers to the dynasty of Jehu. Jehu was Jeroboam's great-grandfather. So there were four kings in that line. And Jehu was originally the commander of Israel's army when Joram was the king. And he inspired a revolt against Joram. And this happened because of Elijah. Elijah actually was told to anoint Jehu as the next king of Israel. And and the idea was Jehu was going to fight and kill a lot of these people who had done terrible evil in the sight of the Lord. And this was God's way of punishing the house of Jehu. So, so what happened to Jehu was deserved. And so one of the difficulties that we have is we come to this text and we find that he is going to avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. And we wonder, well, why? God, you're the one that's set up for, um, for Jehu to go in and kill Jorham. I think I mixed up the names a little bit. Now, now I'm thinking back on it, but Jehu, yes. 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 It was Ahab's dynasty he was getting rid of, not not Jehu. Jehu is, Jehu's dynasty is is Jeroboam the second's dynasty. Jeroboam the second is a part of that. Does that all make sense? So Jeroboam the second is the man who is the king at the time that Hosea is preaching, and so he is the king of the northern tribe of Israel at that time. And and so what's happening here is we're trying to figure out why exactly God is punishing for something that He commanded to do in the first place. And there are a few ideas of why that is. If you read that battle and those events in um, 2 Kings chapter 9, you find that um, Jehu is told to go in and kill Joram, but he ends up also killing Ahaziah, who is the king of Judah. And he wasn't asked to do that. He wasn't told to do that. Okay, there was a lot of blood that was shed in that battle that was not on purpose. He actually went out and murdered him. It was, it was a, something he did on purpose. And so it could be that it is as a result of that sin, that you were told to do this, but you did it your own way. You didn't, you didn't follow the Lord's um, will. Um, you didn't follow his direction in how you carried out the Lord's will. And so you're being punished for that. It could also just mean that the dynasty of Jehu will be punished in the same way that it began. That it began with Jehu killing Joram, and now, ultimately, Jeroboam's son is is killed by someone else a month into his reign. And so it it could mean either one of those things. Um, I hope I haven't confused you more. I have. Absolutely. Okay, so so let's just... um, Do we have a little marker here? Is there a marker? We can... We can do this and make this at least a little clearer, maybe. Right? One of these should write. <laughs> One of them should write. Okay, we got four pens. Well, actually eight, because we got other sides. Okay. So 
You have、um, Joram. This is Israel, right? And so he is the king. King Joram, right? That one, not you can't see that one. I don't. This is not going to go well.、Um, then you have Jehu. Can you see that? Yeah. Wow. To me, it looks the exact same.、Um, so you have Jehu, who is the commander of Joram's army, right? Jehu is told by Elijah that he was to be king. So Commander Jehu is going to become King Jehu, but what he has to do is he has to go in to Jezreel, to this valley, and kill King Joram and his family, including his mother Jezebel.、Um, his father Ahab was already dead. Okay, so then Jehu would become the next king. Okay, so now you got Jehu. Who has a son and another son, and then you have Jeroboam the second, who is in the line of Jehu, because now King Joram has been killed. Okay, does this all make sense? So, in the process of killing King Joram, unfortunately, Jehu took it upon himself to also kill. King Ahaziah, you see this one, who is the king of Judah, who was the cousin or uncle of Joram, but that's irrelevant. So he also gets killed, and it's possible that this text is saying that God is going to judge Israel for the sins of Jehu, because when Jehu went in to kill Joram, he also killed Ahaziah, and he killed some other people that shouldn't have been killed, and so that's why the, that, that's, that's why the punishment is coming. Yes. Ahaziah was part of Ahab's dynasty too, because he was either married to Ahab's daughter or he was the son、right. of Jehu. So that was all part of that same dynasty. And some people would say, "No, that's okay that he killed Ahaziah." What this text is actually saying is that the same way that Jehu killed Joram, Jeroboam's son will be killed by someone else. So, th- so th- it's not that he's actually punishing them; it's just they're going to receive the same kind of punishment that was that he give he gave out in the first place. Okay, that's. Those are the two ways of seeing the text. The other way to see the text is that God is now punishing Jehu for something he told Jehu to do, which doesn't jive with what we know God to to do or be. I'm putting the lids on the wrong way. So leave him in the pulpit. Okay. So does that make a little bit more sense? Jeroboam second. Yes, he's bad. I mean, it's his son that's going to be killed. But Hosea, I guess to make this completely clear. Um, Hosea is now on the scene, and Hosea is preaching to this king and this king and the next like f- like there's a, a succession of like five or six kings very quickly, and then eventually here where Je- Hosea preaches to all these people, eventually Assyria comes, and Assyria destroys Israel, takes everybody into bondage, kills everything. Okay, does that make sense? So Hosea is trying to call Jeroboam and all of Israel to repent, and Hosea's children 
and his, his family, his marriage, are a picture of um, the judgment that's going to come and God's love toward Israel and how Israel has constantly ran away from them. Is that good? Okay. Okay. Okay, so verse number four. The Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. So obviously something must have happened in Jezreel that should not have happened, or it's just saying that it's going to be the same kind of judgment that he had is going to happen here too. In Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, it says, they, For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap a whirlwind. And so this whole time we get this picture that, that it's because of Israel's sin that God is judging them. Um, and so that's, it, it's, that's all I can give you about the name Jezreel. Thankfully, the other names are a little bit easier to, to get to. So, Hosea chapter 1, verse 6. She conceived again and bare a daughter. This time it doesn't say that bear him a daughter, just bear a daughter. God said unto him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, but by horses, nor by horsemen. And, and so here we have Hosea, his wife gives birth to this beautiful little girl, and everybody comes and wonders what her name is, and we find that her name is Lo, which means no, and Ruhama, which means mercy, or pity, or love. No mercy, no love, no pity. Why? Because God will no longer have mercy upon the house of Israel. Can you imagine what that would have been like for the rest of your life? Your name is no mercy. Anybody wants to know why you got named that? I mean, we all have, we're, a lot of us are named after other people or after things. And somebody asks, well, why, why no mercy? What a terrible name for a daughter. Every time her name is said, well, it's because God will no longer have mercy upon the house of Israel. And as, as funny as that might seem, as, might seem weird, if we consider the reality of that message, that you will finally get what you deserve. Can you imagine the terror of having God give us what we deserve? That we were being told now through the name of this girl, every time her name is mentioned, it's a reminder that judgment for us, which we deserve, is coming. We've earned it. You notice that she conceived again, but we don't know that this was... Hosea's child. There's a sermon that was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. I think a lot of you probably heard of that sermon. Um, it's preached in 1741, and it was a sermon about the judgment of God, the just judgment of God. And in that sermon, I mean, it's terrifying. They say that, that people were holding on to the pillars of the building in, in fear as he preached. And if you know a lot about Jonathan Edwards, you know that he didn't use a lot of emotion when he preached. He would just get up and he would, he would say what he had to say. And so he got up and said this and people were terrified. And some of the points that he made is that God may cast men into hell at any given moment. You don't know the number of days that you have. That the wicked deserve to be cast into hell. That divine justice does not prevent God from destroying the wicked at any moment that simply because there are no visible means of death before them at any moment, the wicked should not feel secure. 
And this is exactly where Israel was, right? They felt secure. They thought they were fine. They thought everything was great. They shouldn't have. That all that wicked men do may, to save themselves from hell's pains shall afford them nothing if they continue to reject Christ. That there's nothing inside of yourself that, that can be done. There's no hope without Christ. That God has never promised to save us from hell except those contained in Christ through the covenant of grace. So he made all of these points and, and people were terrified because when you start to think about the reality of the, of the judgment of God, that there is now no longer any mercy. Um, we, we ought to praise God for his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace, right? But, but why do we assume that mercy has no end? There, I mean, God is a God of mercy, but at, at any moment, any given person might die. At any moment, their time might be up and their time for mercy, their time for grace, it's gone. It's past. And we ought not celebrate those things to neglect of God's justice, his wrath, his jealousy. He is that God too. There will come a day for each person that the opportunity to experience the mercy of God is past, that God will have low ruhama on them, no more mercy. Verse 7 also gives us a prophecy. He says, I will have mercy on Judah. And he promises that he will not save them by bow or horsemen. or He won't save them by any way of man's strength. You're not going to look at the way that God saves there and say, well, obviously man had something to do with that. The way that he would save them is that he was going to send an angel to kill 185 Assyrians as they slept. That's how God saved Judah from the Assyrians. That's why Judah was not also carried into bondage when Israel was. Um, An incredible thing that he did. But here we think of what lo ruhama meant for the children of Israel. And it would have been, I mean, if anybody took this seriously, it would have been devastating to them. Unfortunately, I think most of them probably laughed it off and thought thought Hosea was crazy. It kind of seems like nobody ever responded to him. But um, Hosea and his family living in this this life is a picture of the judgment of God. Um, we should probably stop here. We've got one more name to get through, and then we'll get through next week the judgment upon Hosea's wife, Gomer, which is pretty terrible as well. So thank you for coming today. God bless.